The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Welcome to another edition of Spin the Rally Pod, Dirtfish's very own podcast. I'm David Evans. You might have noticed already it's quite quiet. That's right. There is no Lisa O'Sullivan, no George Donaldson and no Colin Clark this week. I'm alone, apart from the man on the other end of the Skype connection. And that is the one and only Derek Dauncey. Derek was team manager at Mitsubishi Rally Art through some of the, the team's most successful years, through those four dominant years of Tommy Mackin and winning back-to-back championships. Uh, Derek has now, of course, moved on to become team manager at Hoonigan Racing, Ken Block's own team. But for years, Derek and I have talked about, or Derek has told me his remarkable stories, um, just amazing stuff. And we've never had time to actually sit down uh, and do it in a fairly structured fashion. So we've decided to do that. Time is uh, is on our side right now, as we know. Uh, so this is the first of what I hope, as long as I can keep Derek on side, uh, the first of a, of a few interviews that we're going to do together, just to get out some of those incredible stories. You know, the 1990s for a lot of people is some of the, you know, it's the best. It's absolutely epic World Rally Championship action. And that was when Derek was at the height of his power with Mitsubishi and when Mitsubishi, of course, was at the height of its own power. So let's just jump straight in, shall we? We are in 1996, I think, Derek, and we're going straight to the Safari Rally, which was, it was a, it was a big event for the team, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was um, a bit of a pivotal event for Mitsubishi. Initially, we... The Japanese side of Rally Art had basically gone and competed on Safari for like six or seven years with uh, Kinjira Shinazuka and the uh, Tusk engineering team. Uh-huh. And they were fully supported by Mitsubishi, but it was a massive effort. I mean, the boys would go out before Christmas and do, you know, two complete recce's of the route, which is a much bigger route back in the early 90s. And they'd struggled to actually get a result there um, against Toyota and Lancia, uh, who were very strong and spending massive money. Um, so, how much, how much would you have spent compared? I mean, we all know about these incredible Toyota stories, you know, of them hiring facilities out there for six months. And blah. what was yours compared with that? Was it anything like that effort? It wasn't on a budgetary side. Um, I would say we were probably doing it for a third of what Toyota spent. Um, when we went out there, what happened was we, in 96, um, in early, early late 95, uh, Mr. Kimata had discussed um, sending a car out, one of our cars out to support uh, Kenjiro. Uh, right. And... In 95, 96, Kenjira still continued the same philosophy of going out and doing two wreckies. We turned up and did a 10-day test before the event. Um, but we took we took enough stuff for that single car to, to, to probably, you know, we weren't going there to be second. We were going there to try and um, do as best we possibly could. 
for, for, for you know for Mitsubishi who wanted to you know they had to set targets they wanted to win Monte Carlo they wanted to win Greece they wanted to win Finland they wanted to win Safari they wanted to win, win Rally GB that was the five main target events in theory obviously they wanted to win everything else but yeah, they were very, very important yeah. events to uh, Mitsubishi so this endurance event for the brand was important you know Mitsubishi had a strong um, a strong presence with the the Lancer in the country um, as a road car, which is an upgraded upgraded version of the Lancer with different bushes uh, and everything. So um, we went out there with uh, with Tommy. Uh, Tommy had come across to us um, the end of in, in 1995, and uh, you know everybody within rugby were quite keen to do it. Andrew Cowan had obviously done Safari in the past and been successful in done endurance stuff. So yeah. we decided to do a two car effort and. Um, I must say it was one of the most challenging events. Safari for me was a Safari in Hong Kong, Beijing were the two challenging events of the year in theory. The others, the Asian Pacific Championship and the World Championship, were were tough. Uh, but we went to '96 with um, with some of the team members that had done Safari before, but also it was it was it was very fresh to a lot of us. So we went into it with a we took a, a European gravel car, yeah, uh, and you know upgraded top mounts and the front. The front uh, chassis rails were were reinforced and double skinned to take the ball bar that you see on the front of the car in case you hit a wild animal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but like the Japanese had gone there with uh, double skin floor and it was ridiculously heavy car and we'd gone with like um, you know a glorified gravel car which was beefed up. So when you say the Japanese, that was the Tusk engineering car. That was Shinazuka's car, was it? That's correct. Uh, Shinazuka. And those boys, you know, they'd done Malaysia, Indonesia, Ivory Coast, Safari. You know, they'd done all the uh, rough, um, rough events out in uh, India and Malaysia and Asian Pacific rounds. So, you know, very good, very good team. Um, Shoji, the tall Japanese engineer, unfortunately died a couple of weeks ago, but um, led by him on the mechanical side and uh, Mr. Shiguru. So, yeah. You know, we, 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 you know, we had a very good relationship with them anyway. So yeah. they did their own cars, Derek. They didn't, they didn't take parts from from rugby, from rally art and rugby. They did. They were based in Japan, and they were quite a separate entity to you. Yeah, completely. I mean, Shinazuka's car was right-hand drive, so um, you know there wasn't a lot of crossover parts apart from that. We took they took the. Um, the magnesium rear uprights and the cast front upright from Japan, same as us. Um, yeah. And then they modified the, the front cross member to, to suit the right and drive car. But, you know, they're on a different damper, different tyre, um, yeah. different philosophy, <laughs> different philosophy in some respects. So when we turned up there, you know, they looked at our car and, and in a nice way, they kind of laughed, I would say. It's probably the best yeah. way of saying it. They didn't think we were going to laugh. It was going to last. And, um, you know, the exposure for the event was a long time. I was there for six weeks to, in preparation, and then we had a ten-day, uh, ten-day test, and we had a six-day recce, and the recce and the test crossed over each other because of some development stuff we were doing, and then you had the rally itself. So uh, it was a long, long event. Your first time there? Yeah, my first time there. I've done some work with um, with Cord Sport, but I didn't actually go to the event when I prep prep for Safari with Cord Sport because we had so many of the programs going. Yeah. So um, I, I mean, Glenn Edmonds, the local contact, we used the Simba Colt uh, Mitsubishi workshop. Um, they were really good to us, mm-hmm. and uh, that was our base. And um, it was you know it's like you know you're almost trying to replicate what you have at rugby back there to make all the boys feel. You know, at home, 
a laundry service came in, the food was delivered of a night time. You know, it was, um, it, was, it was like an encampment, a small army in theory. It, it is a culture shock, though, isn't it? When you go out to Kenya for the first time, you know, nothing. For me, it was the biggest. You know, I've, I've been to all of the flyaway rallies, but Kenya is still the one where you think, wow, this is another world at times. Yeah, and, and, and you know, it was different in the early 90s, but like oh. mid 90s, there was, there was no. There was no British radio, no, no English TV. You, you know, you the colonial side was still slightly there in some respects. Um, president Moy was the president, and you know he was the biggest landowner in Texas. So there was still a lot of poverty in the country. Yeah. But a great, a great, um, a great knowledge of the safari rally that was always run at Easter. So you know everybody in the dog knew what you were there to do. Um, so friendly, unbelievably friendly people. And um, you know, as I said, Mitsubishi were brilliant to us. Mitsubishi Motors out there. And uh, you know, back in those days, you could deal with British Airways, and you could go and check everybody in without passports. You could get a passport to go, a, a pass to go airside to meet your air freight. You know, everything everything's completely changed now. But uh, everybody, everybody is super, super uh, keen on the rally and help out what they could. Yeah, the, just to whiz back to the car, you, yours was, a, as you say, a converted gravel spec car. How did that compare to the to the Toyota? There, theirs was a ground up safari car. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it was probably more developed. I mean, from our point of view, we we chucked a fair bit at it from trying to be clever where we spent our money. But like the first day of the test, the first day of the 10 day test there, you know, it was kind of a bit of a cultural shock. Mm. We actually came, we actually came back to the workshop the first night thinking that we, we got an issue with the dampers and the dampers were squeaking really badly as we're driving along. Uh, you could notice here like a, like a really bad metallic on metallic sound. Got back to the workshop thinking that, you know, okay, we we're going to have to try and, fix this in the field but fix it so we can go carry on the second day of the test and then we had a close look and you could put your hand up in between the floor where the cross member was and touch the uh, fuel tank the actual back of the car completely splitting off <laughs> so it meant it meant the first night that we had to take you you run a 125 litre tank so you can imagine that's 125 kilograms of, of weight plus a spare wheel in there and that broke that broke the back of the car so Unfortunately, the first night was was an all nighter, um, taking everything out and using half a reel of welding wire to stitch everything back together again, and then we were back out the next morning running. That's so. incredible, and, and what a, that's a proper sort of baptism of fire, isn't it? That it it makes you rethink everything safari. Those those old spec safaris because they were so rough, weren't they? Oh, I mean. It, it's quite kind of crazy. I mean, not that year we took an engineer, uh, a year an engineer from the team. I won't say who it was, <laughs> and uh, he actually point blank refused to go down one of the test roads because he thought it was too rough. And it was it was Magadi Road was always our was always our base test road, and we went back there every year because you could you you know you had a base knowledge of what you'd done the year before. Yes. And you know we came back, we put him in the car. I said, look, the best thing to do is go in the car with Tommy and he'll show you, you know, where we're roughly at. And there was a massive ravine in there that Tommy would always take flat out. So, but the strange thing, the, 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 one of the key factors of the, the event for us in 96 was um, we'd been working with Pekka Siltonen on a, on a damper. We'd, we'd used the Japanese dampers, 
they hadn't worked. Um, even in late 95 at Rally GB, we had a lot of problems with rebuilding dumpers overnight. And we went to Safari that year with with Pekka's, uh, Silton and Finnish engineers design with Olin's making the parts. So it was a bit of a hybrid Olin stroke um, Pekka damper, um, which was highly successful. I mean, we flew out to the event uh, with a set of dampers. We put them on the, the test car, which had already left rugby before the dampers were complete and took the car around the back of the workshop and it floated on the rough surface. Really? So, yeah, so we kind of, you know, you have like a an aha moment. Yeah. Um, it really was. It really felt like a bit of a aha moment. And we went back into the shop and it was back in the days before mobile phones. We phoned, trying to get a telephone line back to the UK to speak to Roland Lloyd. And tell him that you know, okay, go. We need to go ahead with, with what we can with these dampers because the, the two sets we had, we had a set and a set for this for the test. They definitely were a step up, not just for Safari, but as a as a global damper improvement. Fifty inch uh, shocker tube. The, the valving was different. The way that the blow off worked inside the damper was different. But you know, for the rough conditions out there, straight away we had a bit of a tick in the box. Yeah. So it was a it was a massive step for us to 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 try and achieve what we wanted to do, but it moved a few of the problems that we saw during the test onto you know things like the rose joint bearings. The fibre linings would only last maybe fifty sixty kilometres before they started banging away. So we've gone through this whole circle of moving problems around the car and having to fix them in the field and coming back with different solutions. So. Um, it led to us changing the philosophy of the event where I think many people probably remember that we started to change every corner of the car at every service and that was, that was driven by a necessity um, to try and keep the, the rose joint bearings intact and the suspension geometry intact so that Tommy could push. So yeah, which, which I mean we should bear in mind here that this is this is Tommy's first ever time on the safari isn't it and you know being a reasonably typical Finn, he he kind of only knows one approach to rallies. Is is that fair? Yeah, and, and that 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 hits it right in the head. Really, I think that he it became clear, you know, during the, during the, because we took a Group A recce car and a Group A test car out there, you we were running the cars incredible amount of mileages to, and we were getting a, you know fantastic feedback really early on to try and think about what we had to do. But Tommy's approach was, you know. He was driving quicker than what we probably would have negated what he needed to do. Yeah, uh, but he's super competitive. I mean, you could see how quick he was in '95. So we got to a point where um, we were we were changing um, corners and uprights during the recce at the, at the lunch break just to keep the car fresh for him. And back in the workshop, it became evident that we were going to be short of bearings. And I went. We, we called back to Andrew to, to ask him to bring a load more bearings out for the event. And then it became clear that if we we would have to be doing much more, you know, routine service to keep the car going to get to the finish. Yeah. But then the, the penny kind of dropped that if we could give Tommy a almost near new car before we started, um, you know, we, we had a, a better chance of getting to the finish in a half decent position, whether it was first, second, third or fourth, you know, that was the, the concept of it. Um, but it meant that um, you know we had to do this, this, these, you know, maybe major changes in 20 minutes. So, oh. looking, looking at, looking at, you know, 
car coming in, trying to ch check whether a lateral or a trailing link was bent, it, it was deemed quite quickly that it was quicker just to change the corner that, yeah. from our point of view. So went on the campaign of um, practicing the workshop in, with the mechanics to turn each corner to make sure they could change a corner, which wasn't easy with the old car, especially on the rear with the bag, what we called the bagpipes. It was a lower lateral trailing link, upper link, toe link, upright and damper. Um, you know, to try and do that in 20 minutes is, and, and track it back up again. That was one of the key factors we could see that we had to have the car track when it left for such a high speed event. You could not have the driver feeling like the car was wandering. No. So, uh, so we practiced and uh, had a meeting with Lassie and Tommy and um, before the event, and it, we kind of flipped, it kind of flipped round. It was like, okay, we're going to give you a brand new car, and it's going to help us from our side. We'll change the way we operate. I, had, I left somebody back in the workshop, Kevin McKenzie, to to rebuild all the suspension. Uh, that was the idea, but then we were quite clear that we had to then change the, after the recce and the test, we were clear that we had to change the actual damper fluid. So it meant a strip of the dampers. But again, we were going to give Kent, uh, we were going to give Tommy a, you know, a brand new car every single time we saw him. So it was, um, we were driven into that position, but also it was, we put the, it was kind of a real big team effort because Tommy came in and handed the car to us and it was up, up to us to get the car back out to him. Uh, in the 20 minutes so in the end the boys were were getting down changing everything complete and refitting everything and tracking in like 12 or 13 minutes that's so, incredible yeah. you, you would have been snookered though wouldn't you if if he'd come in with an engine problem as well that yeah we, we saw we, we saw that we had a few other issues like that in 98 that we'll probably talk about a bit later um but it was we had enough people to just make sure that you know there was eight people on the corners and we had you know specialists but our specialists could also work on the car and one of the key factors was we planned and planned and practiced and practiced on the test and recce car that everybody could change a corner including myself so right. it was uh, it was an important element to try and make sure we were completely covered so so starting the event we, we had this philosophy of um, going in there but obviously the Japanese team were in the workshop and their car was like bulletproof and they were just going home early and you know we were working well into the night every single night to keep everything going and to rebuild stuff and to plan how we were going to do it we had a runner vehicle that would pick the first set of dampers up and suspension arms the first service each morning and drive back to Nairobi and the boys would start rebuilding stuff and then we'd turn back up over night time and help rebuild everything for the following morning so it was a proper team effort and I mean these are these are obviously long long before the times where you could only have four people on a car at any one time I mean how many how many people would have been on the event in, in and able to work as a mechanic? Yeah, I mean, every our, as I said, our philosophy with the Mitsubishi was we had specialists like transmission, electrician, damper guy, um, but we also had like a second or third tier that all worked in those departments so they could move around. But I can't remember exactly for how many we had for 96, but for 98, we definitely had 28 mechanics there with the specialists. So it was in theory there was 14 people per car in 98. I think probably for 96 we had at least 14, 15 per, out there for that period. Um, so, you know, as I said, eight of those people were busy every single service, plus we had three people back in the workshop, and there's 11, plus there's, a, there's probably five or six others. So, you know, 
it, it, it was busy all the time into the night. And just, I mean, having the sort of foresight to get the the dampers away back to the to the place in Nairobi or wherever to get them rebuilt ready for the next day. You know, it's it's a tremendous effort. How how important was Andrew Cowan in there? Because, like you said, you know, he had a great experience of this kind of this style of rallies. Was he? Was he a real sort of general in the operation, or did he sort of sit back a bit and and let you all get on with it? it Andrew, the figurehead Andrew got, he he had the he was the he would pick his moment to say the right thing to people, which was for me he was a great leader. You know, he he came out when the rally was just starting, and I remember, I remember calling him on the phone and asking him to bring out two hundred rose joint bearings with him and carry, and he had to bring, he had to get, he had to check him in and carry him on the plane. Yeah. And, and and at that time, you know, Andrew was like, yeah, you must be joking, you know, what, what do you want all these bearings for and why are we using all these bits? And, and you know, I, I ended that conversation by saying, do you want to win this rally or not? Yeah. And he was like, well, and it's like, and he, you know, he's good as gold, but he, he was a brilliant guy to work with. He had all that experience with Safari. He could he could talk to a driver that, you know, he could relate to them. But on the tech, on the, our side of it, from the servicing side, it was almost like, you know you're not in you're all in and when you're all in you have to pull out every stop you can to you know to to get that car to the finish but also you know we also had a lot of pride in trying to do the best for Mitsubishi for rally art for, but every single member of the team we had that mentality so mm. Andrew Andrew when we were when times were tough when we we're in the workshop at three three to five in the morning when we didn't sleep all night he'd always pick his time to speak to people and, and to give them that little bit of a you know, a pep, a pep talk or yeah. a bit of encouragement, and that, he was brilliant at that. But it, this was obviously this was '96, uh, and this is the year that uh, Toyota was excluded from the World Championship for their misdemeanors in in Spain the previous season with the turbocharger. There was Ian Duncan was there, though, wasn't he? In a what would have been essentially a, fa- a factory Toyota. D- do you think, in some ways, did it diminish? From the result that Toyota wasn't there as as the works force, or you know, you were still racing Duncan, weren't you? Yeah, we were, but I mean, you can it's horses for courses in theory. I mean, Ford were there with a, a big onslaught, and Subaru obviously, you know, they were there and they were you know they were pushing they were pushing very hard to you know to to try and to win the event. Kenneth was with them, and he was you know vastly experienced driver, so. You know, we could see we could see Colin and Kenneth and Liati, three car Subaru team, and Ian Duncan, yeah. uh, and then obviously Stig was driving uh, for Ford as well. You, you know, and Carlos. So yeah. there was enough in depth for us to turn up on the first event, worrying whether, you know, you know the target was to to minimum to get on the podium. That was the idea, um, but you know during the event it completely flipped round. Um, I remember the first service point um, because we we'd gone to service. We were into you know the normal twenty minute service during the day, which is mm. which is bloody short time when you think that you know of what you've got you know what event you're on. You know, yes. so we got to the first the first service and we laid everything out and we were in, Subaru were were um, servicing next to us and uh, we started changing every corner. I can remember I won't name who they were, but there was a couple of senior Subaru management that were looking across and smiling thinking that we were hitting massive problems yeah. and uh, the car left and then the car came back in for the second service at the same location uh, Alta Pessi and um, 
the we did the same thing and then I could see the penny drop on well it's Mr. Richard's face and uh, I think he suddenly realized what we were what we were, what we were doing and we, we changed the philosophy everybody followed us to try and do the same thing after uh, the following year so um, but it, it, it was it was tough. It, we were using a helicopter to fly the dampers back after the last service to get rebuilds. During the rally, there was I was stripping rear dampers with some of the boys. We were sending the rest back to the hotel, but the, the damper boys took the, the punishment for that one. We were up, we were up for three days in theory. So, but you know, it was a, it was it was a massive result at the end of it because we kind of dominated it in some respects um, from early on. So Tommy's driving was second to none. Mm. Uh, you know, the more the more the recce went on, the more the test went on, the more he understood how to hit the ravines and where to place the car and how much to brake. And you know, it was a it, it was a it was a global effort from everybody. And um, uh, I can tell you now, 100% that the last service point, which was a splash and dash, there was not one person there. If they tell you differently, they were all got tears in their eyes because they suddenly realised what they'd achieved. With the effort they put in, so it was it was pretty rewarding. And that's that's the thing. I mean, we shouldn't, you know, as a team, it was a magnificent effort. But from a driver's perspective, there is a very specific way of driving this this event, isn't it? the safari? You know, it's you can't go at it hell for leather. You've got to learn where to come down into first gear. I remember Nicky Gris telling me that you know when he started working with Colin, it was very difficult to get Colin slowed down enough. And in the end, Nicky said they agreed to to put the word stop in the notes. And it was literally a, you know, you required that word, you know, the sort of severity of stop to really bring you down into first gear and actually slow the car sufficiently. That wasn't Tommy's style. And the fact that he could, we've touched on this already briefly, the fact that he could tailor his driving style to that event so quickly was, you know, I mean, looking at the times, he he was quickest on the second section, wasn't he? I mean, that's impressive. Yeah, that was, um, you know, and also, you know, there was some guidance as well from Sepp Arion, who'd obviously been in there with, with the group B, with, with Salon, and so, yeah. but Lassie's, Lassie's input was good, but we haven't really broadcast this, but we used, um, in later years, we even used a roadbook to actually split time, the, with the, with, we, had, we had two helicopters in later years, that year we had a single helicopter with Lassie in, um, and that, you know, you could drop out of the air and you know change tires at that point for the cars it was open but you'd use the, the spotters to try and guide this pace in the competitive sections as well so you know we tried we tried every angle we could to try and you know help tommy out but as i said the more that the event went on the more you learn you know to, you've got to give the event respect else you're not going to get out of there you know the, the first service you would always see that the front windscreen had cracked because they push and push to where right. it felt it was too much, and then when the cracking of windscreen happened, then you roughly knew that you were probably on the limit. So it was everything was really tried. We tried everything we possibly could to to try and help out. But Tommy's pace, you know, it, it, if you if you if if Ryan never got to a point where you could actually physically feel what it's like to be in a car with one of the top drivers, it would blow your mind. And seeing him, Tommy on the test there, uh, he he was incredibly quick. But as I say, you have to show the event some respect to get results out of it. Yeah. And that just talk us through a little bit more, you know, from from the spotter helicopter. 
how how do you guide the pace? Because we, you know we know the stories of the spotter that is up there to look for the elephants and the animals running across the road, or or you know a, a slower car in front. But what would you be? What would the guy in the heli be saying? You know, it's quicker here, or how would that work? The the the, the key the key points you've got is if if you're starting first on the road, it's slightly different. If you're start, starting further back, you can see the helicopters in front of you. So yeah. once you get a guide of, of where roughly they are on the road and the speed that you're going along, you can work out really quickly whether you're catching a car in front yeah. or whether you're dropping behind. So that's the first your first visual thing. Then you have to be you know you you have to have two sets of eyes. You're looking down to make sure there's not going to be a, um, uh, an animal come out of the bushes that are on the side of the road. And then you're also trying to look at you know to gauge whether or not you're catching the car in front. And then you can start. We had an open channel we could we could talk between the helicopters so you could ask you know if it's mr riddle in the helicopter in front from subaru you'd ask him if he could put you know you're giving him warning that you're catching the car yeah. in front so there's the it, the helicopter itself was 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 like a, it was it was three purposes it was a spotter for for safety yeah. it was because it, it wasn't just wild animals that you'd, you'd actually come across a lot of people probably don't realize but safari rally was open roads it wasn't closed sections so you can come into Nakuru or places like this. You come on the link sections in there pretty quick, and you can have buses on the road. So yeah. you're calling which way you want to keep at the bus. The people are there. You're spotting for that no one's going to run across. People on bikes, uh, you know, young kids that are there. Uh, you know, that, I, I'll say, Derek, just at this point, that blow that would blow a lot of our younger listeners' minds. The fact that they would come into these villages flat out, and and you know there was no. There was no speed restriction. There was it was just part of the section, and you know obviously the drivers drove those sections with an awful lot more care, and you know using their eyes more to look for for people crossing the road. But it's bonkers, isn't it, in this day and age to think that you were in a helicopter saying, "Look out for the school bus. He's on the left. Go to the right." It's it's mad. Yeah, I mean some of the McLean photos you'll see from from the period. Uh, there's some of them through the villages and you can see some of the people still on the side of the road. It's, it, it, it's totally crazy. You know, it's, um, um, at the time, you know, there's two, two ways of looking at it. Safari was such a massive thing that people knew what was going on, but you know, you've stood in the stages. If you're, if you're downwind of a rally car, you don't hear it come past you until it's past you. So, you know, the helicopter above the car, you know, gives a warning to the locals that there's a rally car approaching a high speed. And we, we'd, we'd use the helicopter uh, during the test as well. So, you know, that, that whole philosophy was there. But, you know, we, had a heli- we always had a doctor in the helicopter. Um, we always had a spotter. We had one mechanic and we had a spare wheel and some tools. And we also had, we were very lucky to have a very good pilot. One of the, you know, Charles was one of our pilots that was ex-President Moy military uh, pilot, and we uh, used the same used the same helicopter at Wilson Airport in Nairobi, and he he was part of very very important part of the team. He could fly sideways, he could come across, he could look, he'd be an extra set of eyes to spot something coming out. So you've got a good bit of language between the three of you in the helicopter, and we always made sure that where possible the doctor was trying to look out for stuff as well so how much chatter was there between the heli and, and the car you know on a minute by minute would you would it be one call per minute or would you, you know could there be 10 minutes with silence or i i mean some of the sections i mean you know you could see some of the sections are 100 kilometers long you know that first the second section i think on 96 was 
we'd always based our ideas on keeping the car together for 120k. The first section was a short section, maybe 50, 60 kilometres. The second was over 100 kilometres. So, you know, you'd probably call... It depends on it depends on how many animals were there. If you're first car on the road, obviously you're clearing a lot of the animals out of the way as well. So, depending on what was there, um, but you know, you you are talking to the drivers and you are telling them, you are telling them whether or not you're catching. And, uh, and then, of course, you know, the downside is that in, they're obviously calling the notes, and the notes are not the same as what you get with the European event. There's, there's some more gaps in it. So, but then once once you know once once the driver starts catching the driver, you're starting to get, you know, you've been asked, have you talked to the helicopter in front? Are they going to stop? Are they going to pull over? Yeah. You know, you've got that banter coming back as well, so it was always interesting. And and when you did see animals, you sometimes the heli would be a bit further ahead of the car, and you'd tr- try and drop down, and if there were a herd of elephants, you try and move them, essentially. By yeah, I mean, if it, not, it was the, it was a heli, it was the pilot's job to spot a group of animals. If there was a if it was a problem with a group of animals in front, we'd go he'd go straight away, he'd leave the car, and he'd go and try and buzz them. Generally, you try and sit above because you're so much higher. You're sitting on the road and you're looking down. Um, so he's he's in two positions. He can either move forward to uh, to to move animals. He can move forward to warn you know the spectators there, which we have done in the past. But generally, he's trying to he's trying to he's, he's overviewing and trying to look from left and right to see what's coming towards the road. So you know that the animals the animals themselves, whether they're you know giraffes or yeah. elephants or whatever, they are uh, they normally move in a in a in a lateral movement across the road. So you know you you do have it's a small it's the small animals, the dogs and you know the you know uh, birds like gazelles that can hit the hit the screen and shatter the screen and end up in the car through the roof scoop. There's things like that you're trying to trying to avoid if possible. Yeah, but it, it, I got to say, you know, this just talking to you now, it almost gives me goosebumps. You know, safari is an event I absolutely love, and that job must have been one of, you know, apart from driving and co-driving, that must have been one of the most exciting jobs to be in the heli uh, on an event like that because you were so integral to the actual competition, weren't you? Yeah, it's it's. Uh... There's so many elements to it. I mean, the, the strange thing is we, we talked about, you know, telling some of the stories of these events, and I, I rewrote some of the notes from it, which, you know, it kind of, you, you completely forgot about. You know, you forgot about having to go in the middle of nowhere and drop fuel drums of aviation fuel to make sure the chopper can be refueled. <laughs> uh, you know, we got to, you know, we we ended up jump-starting a helicopter at one service pilot because the pilot left the actual things. Or the, the center panel fired up. You know, there's so many things involved. I can remember the first event, first time we were there, first part of the test. We wanted to see how much spare parts we could take into the helicopter with the pilot and the spotter and the the mechanic and the the uh, the doctor. And we had this great long big list of parts we wanted to take, and it, it was like a tenth, ten percent of that because obviously, you know, Nairobi's at altitude. Yeah, you've got to make sure the helicopter can take off. So. This is no word of a lie. One of the legs we knew we were going to, you know, it was a rough section. We had the helicopter hovering before we put the parts in, and then the helicopter took off. So, Seriously? yeah, we, we tried, we did everything in theory. <laughs> wow. That's, you've got to be a fairly brave man to jump in that heli as well. It's, uh, no, these are, are incredible memories. And, and tell us about, you know, the, the actual 
achievement of getting to the finish and, and winning the event, it must have been enormous, uh, an enormous an emotional moment for the whole team. I think, I think, I think the because we were so busy with keeping everything going uh, back back then, my job was to 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 look after the service uh, with Molly and basically you know all the parts supply and you know the tires and having everything in the right place. Yeah. Alice obviously was the controller, but it was like you know we we physically had to keep the ball rolling in some respects, and it was um, you almost like ignored the fact that you were doing quite well in the event. To be honest with you, because it, uh, your first thing was to survive the event and get through the event. Yeah. So when we were going along and you know we were fastest on the second section and Tommy was getting quite clear, you know for me that because the rally was three. You know, it was three legs long that year. It was a shorter event. It was, um, I think, it was 650, 660 kilometres long, which is which is long compared to today's um, events. But it was shorter compared with others. It was almost like three rallies within a rally. So getting through the first event, and then you know, if you can think as well, um, there were when you finished the last section coming back into Nairobi at the end of each leg, you'd you, you'd have two hours in the workshop. If we yeah. had to check in, so you'd, you'd come down the road section, even if you're like 30 kilometres off the route, you'd dive into your workshop. There'd be a massive onslaught to get the car turned around and back out again. So not only are you servicing the field, but there's like a, you know, galloping down the road to get in front of the car before the last service. Helicopters landing with parts. and um, it, So there was so much going on, you ignored the result. But going into like last day, it was it was like almost ticking off the, the stages. Um, the, what, the, the last but one stage that year was 200, I think it was 210 kilometres long. And oh. for me, that was like the, you know, if we get that, we have to get through that stage. We have to get through that stage. And you kept on saying, you have to get through that stage. And um, uh, the last one was, was still like 80, 80 odd kilometres or something. I think it was, uh, I think it was Autopessi, the last stage. Um, so we, you know, we were, you, you're almost biting your nails, but you're also ignoring it, knowing that you've got to get the car through. So, but when we got to that, that last splash and dash uh, fuel after the stage to get into Nairobi, I swear there was nobody, there was nobody that wasn't crying at that service. They realised what had gone on. Yeah. Uh, we, we didn't, I didn't see um, Tommy until the night time back at the service because we were then into getting the, all the vans back and we had to start the, Getting, getting stuff taken up the cars for the for the for the next event, but uh, that night in the uh, hotel we were stopping at the Serena Lodge. Um, there were, I don't think I had a dry piece of clothing on the next day. I was chucked in the pool. I think three times. Everybody <laughs> ended up in the pool. Yeah. You've, you've seen the famous McLean pictures from Toyota that were yeah. just a beyond Vordegard, and it seems like a ritual out there. But it was kind of disbelief. I, I didn't really believe that we won the event until I got back to the hotel that night and uh, it for me with the challenges that we had and having to you know firefight on an hourly basis for those four or five weeks it was so rewarding um, it, it really was and Tommy came around and thanked everybody I don't think I think I still think he was in disbelief mm. uh, but for, for, for Mitsubishi it was a massive uh, massive victory I felt sorry for Kenjiro and the Tusk team, you know, they'd struggled along for so many years, and we, you know, they were part of the team anyway. They celebrated with us, um, but it, it wasn't ideal that we came in and won it first time. But um, we kind of, ch- I think, we changed so many things about how team looked at Safari. We, you know, we, what we changed during the day. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was a, 
I think that that catalyst then made it like, you know, you almost wanted to straight away, you wanted to come back the following year and win that event. And it became very important to Mitsubishi that we were successful in the future. Yes. Yeah. And it, I mean, fair dues, it was, you know, you talk about Shinazuki, you beat them by two hours and you beat everybody by 14 minutes. You know, Kenneth Erickson was second for Subaru. That, in an event that took 12, more than 12 hours, nearly 13 hours, still a 14-minute win is, is worth having, isn't it, in Safari? Oh, yeah, it was, it was good. It was, uh, it was basically, but 14 minutes isn't a long time in Safari. So, you know, the, even, even carrying the lead into the last leg, it wasn't enough. It's never enough. No, it's you know, we carried two spares, so you know, getting the first spare out of the car is fine. Getting the second spare out of the car is not ideal coming across. So, you know, two two punches on the section, you could you could drop yeah. ten minutes easy, easy. Yeah, and and so one thing I remember from coming back from Kenya is you know you almost go into decompression. Uh, this kind of because it is this other world that you live oh. in, and you know you're so involved in a rally and everything. And to come back to Europe, it's quite different, isn't it? And that's for me, you know, after a week or 10 days out there. But you were out there for six weeks or something. How, you know, how did you reacclimatize to normal life? Uh, I think the, the thing for me, it's really difficult, like looking back, looking back now on the events. I mean, you have to look, you know, it, it becomes a bit of a, a, a muddle until you actually look at like a planner or uh, what we did for that year. In '95, we in '95 we we basically pushed. '96 we we taken on specialist drivers, so we were chopping and changing around. You were just coming back and then straight to the next event, really, because what people don't see is you, you know, you've got a, a test, then a recce, then a rally in between every event. So we and we got, you know, '96 we were doing Hong Kong, Beijing rally and Asian Pacific rounds. So you know, we had a massive, massive program that wasn't generally just on world championship we were doing the events that you know was important to Mitsubishi Motors so uh, you know that year my which we'll talk about later my next you know big project with the with the long haul events um, and also Hong Kong Beijing which logistically was uh, was like moving was moving like moving the British army in some respects yeah. so you, you, you were you, you were you were you came out of this one and uh, you're into the next one, but it felt good for a long time. That event win, it really did. I bet because you know we we shouldn't forget that obviously '95 had been Colin McRae's year, uh, and and '96 the start for sure. It was you know to, Tommy won Sweden, which was the opening round in '96, and then this safari it was two from two, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and uh, you know the I did all the prep for for Sweden and then flew straight to Kenya whilst. Sweden was on, so and we, we couldn't get results from anybody. I mean, oh, the, really? The fax machine was like the fax machine was was our form of contact at that point, and it was if you could get a line out every once every twenty times, you were lucky. So uh, I remember getting the message through, uh, and then the fax through from from, the, from our PR people. It was uh, it was ma- it was a massive result, but we were unlucky in '95 to some degree. But it also, I think that um, I'm glad it. I'm glad it. We came through '95 and into the start of '96 the way we did because it, you know, we were seen as like the, you know, the the third tier team by some yeah. of the other teams, you know, with much bigger budgets, um, and we did have the smallest budget, so 
we, we kind of, you know, Andrew spent the money wisely and, you know, he always questioned if I was ordering parts. You know, you go into the office and you'd have to justify ordering, you know, 120 Lobo joints and 240 rear Lobo joints. You'd have to write out what event it was for and schedule change. But we spent the money wisely and when we went to Safari, you know, not having a big budget, we had to think of it more rather than buy our way out of the problems. But it was difficult because, you know, Andrew Cowan was, was a little bit under pressure from Japan to focus more on on Asia Pacific at that time, wasn't it? That was where the market was. And, you know, Asia Pacific Championship in the mid-90s was huge, you know, with with Subaru and the 555 money and and all of that. It was it was a very different environment, wasn't it? Ah, massively different. And again, you know, it's it's difficult unless you're in you're involved in it, you don't see what the you know what where the loyalties are and where how is it what's important. As I said before, you know, Asian Pacific was massive. Hong Kong Beijing was inc- incredibly important for them to do well in because of the you know the Subaru battle and the five 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 battle. Um, but also, you know, there was a we had this you know this checklist of Monte Carlo, Greece, Finland, Rally GB. They they were incredibly important for for uh, as marquee events that um, Mitsubishi wanted to do extremely well in. And and you know the. You know, ultimately they wanted to win the world championship, so that was you know we tiered up over from '95 to '98. We kind of went at the, the the running board, but it was not easy to keep everything running with the nation civic program and Hong Kong Beijing and the world championship. Yeah, yeah, but I mean maybe that to move now into into Hong Kong Beijing. You know, that's it's not an event I I know a huge amount about, but it like you say, it was it was a really big deal. Um, Tell us more. You know why? Why did it mean so much, and and why was it logistically such a big challenge? You entered a lot of cars there, didn't you, that year? Yeah, '96 again. We um, we we entered three cars. Um, again, you know, we had our affiliation with um, Kenjiro. Yeah, we'd done the event before, and um, he was being run. He's you know been run by Rally Art Japan with support from Rally Art Australia with that car normally. Um, so when we we gone to gone to Hong Kong Beijing the year before and, and it wasn't a brilliant event, so again you know you learn from what what happens. But we we went there with uh, Ari Vatanen, the, the legend, yeah. And, uh, Richard Burns supporting. Uh, well, they weren't really supporting anybody. It was, it was a, it, they were both number one drivers in theory. But we went with three cars, which logistically meant you know we had cert- because the nature of the, the event it's a seven day rally. It's extremely challenging um, for a number of reasons, from road surface to conditions to the environment to. But you're driving from Hong Kong, Beijing, uh, from Hong Kong uh, into China on the first day, and then you drive straight through in a straight line right away, to, right through to Beijing, and um, you, you know, it's a separate, separate um, service uh, overnight halts, separate yeah. hotels every night. You have to, and when you leave in Hong Kong, you have to carry everything with you for those seven days: fuel, tires, spares, yeah, luggage, that luggage linear, the drivers, everything. That linear route is is logistically it must have been a nightmare because you know, and a nightmare to do in Europe, but let alone you know to do it where the language is so entirely different, and you know the written language is is it's it's hieroglyphics to us to actually 
prepare everything to do that is is a massive job isn't it and just to know that everything you know if you leave something behind you're not going to see it again no, that's right i mean again we we were in 96 we were taking um you know service vehicles were coming from the from the world championship and also which were the you know the burger vans we called them at the time but also you know we had um, we had dedicated vehicles that we bought out there for it so we ended up having over 30 service vehicles with the management vehicles for that event to run the three cars so it was 80 plus people so it, but but with that um again i imagine nobody not, 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 not a lot not a lot of people know it but every service vehicle is actually physically entered in the rally in some respects for the insurance purposes so we had two girls in um we'd rally our hong kong amos Yu and his and kimmy ho they spent three months doing all the permits and paperwork and vehicle entries to get into china it was a massive massive wow. just a thing from their point of view just to get us <laughs> to the starting ramp in theory so yeah. We used the, um, we, had, we were fortunate, we used the British Army Gurkha camp in Kowloon as our base um, of operations. It's quite a, quite a good term. But uh, we, we did all, I did all the preparations out there and we had a really good relationship with the, with the um, adjutant who ran the barracks and we could eat at the canteen each day. So we were driving 40 minutes from, um, from, from the centre of Hong Kong each morning in minibuses to start work. And then work all day there, and then come back of an evening. But um, as I said, it, it was a mammoth, mammoth exercise to bring all the vehicles from the port, even before, load them all up, make sure we had everything. And um, uh, we had the assistance of Rally Art uh, Australia, and obviously Rally Art Hong Kong for that event. So it was a, uh, it, it was incredibly different. I think we, I think we had 350 wheels and tires built before the event started out. Michelin flew two technicians out to to fit tires. Um, every vehicle, you know, silly things like we'd have to, um, you know, write whether it's petrol or diesel in Chinese on the petrol cap so that when you got to the fuel halts, you didn't get the wrong fuel put in there. Uh, you know, there were so many things that went on. But the strange thing is, you know, like looking back at it now, um, Wuhan, where obviously this coronavirus um, maybe started, um, was the overnight halt on the fourth night. Really? Yeah, we actually stopped in Wuhan. Um, it was a, a from what I can remember, from what I can remember, it was a massive, massive. Um, it was one of the massive towns that we stopped at. And the strength, there's a pretty good story with it. it was um, once it once the rally starts, you you don't see the car until you know you may do a, one service a day on the side of the road, and your your main aim is to get to the end of the leg. And you will drive literally 17 hours a day to get to the overnight halt. So you, you, we were starting at 2 a.m. in the morning. You know, being British, we'd try and stop about six, seven o'clock in the morning when it's just light to get a quick cup of tea, and then you'd be on the road again. You know? So, um, but but going into Wuhan, um, the crowds were so crazy that um, the, the the actual rally cars were struggling to get to the service halt. And then when it did, you know. If you've seen the if you've seen the rally car in the morning, you're trying to catch up with the car because it's it's zooming off the route and doing the stage and coming back on and keep going. It doesn't stop. And we were struggling to get the service vehicles to the uh, end of the lake. Um, I remember one evening um, we made it through with one van and um, the three cars the three cars turned up in convoy, and we had no mechanics. So uh, we, Ari was. Harry was the total professional. He um, he basically came over. You know, you know, there's nowhere for them to sit. They were just waiting. 
And he goes, "What can I do?" And, I said, and he, he'd actually, he'd, somebody, he'd hit something in the in the uh, stage, and the, the door was buckled in. He couldn't open the door properly. I said, "Do me a favour, take the door panel off, and then we'll have a look at it, and, and then we, you know we'll carry on checking the cars." It was two, it was two hour plus service. I said, "The boys will turn up at some point, and you know they start to come through about after an hour, but you know he's good as gold. He took the panel off, he pushed the door panel out." He put the handle back on. He re-put the panel back on. He came back. He asked what he could do. He, you know, he got the fuel drum. He refueled the three cars for us. Um, you know, he, he, he was he was brilliant, and, and that's that was that mentality that we needed to try and you know to try and get through that event. The, the service vans, you know, the service briefing, um, we'd send out. I think Alistair Roberts and uh, you know Ken Reese from Subaru went out. With Kimi Ho and uh, Amos Yu to do a full recce of that route to do, work out where we were going to service. But it became very clear that you know you couldn't afford to lose a van out there. You'd never see it again. So you, it was imperative that everybody made it through each day and through the end to the end of the rally. And it, I mean, it, just it, like you say, such an adventure. You know, driving seventeen hours a day to to get from place to place. It. it like a, a kind of a Dakar, isn't it? I mean, that's the only kind of way that you can you can talk about this thing. You talk about the en- entering the service cars in the event. That's exactly what they do on that event, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's similar similar format. I mean, I'd look back at it before. And I don't know if you remember Andy Dawson went out there a long time ago with the Fords, and Toyota went there a few, for a few years with uh, Beyond. Uh, and and the, the event was like a real... You know, you've really got it's one of those events you, you you're learning so much as you go along i mean we, you wouldn't have it like a bivouac like do with dakar you'd have a hotel and you you'd, but it was such a long day you'd get to the hotel maybe at 10 o'clock at night after you've done your restock and you've, you've moved tires around and worked out who's used what and there'd be a big banquet table in the middle of the hotel and you yeah. went it's like a buffet you went and picked out what you wanted but everything is you can imagine it was Back in 1960, it was just local food, so you ended up picking rice. And what you know, I, I used to go for the for the white meat, chicken. Yeah. And um, it, I found out the following morning from Amosu, the local he goes, oh, I said, how's the food? What's going on? I said, oh, you know, it was it was okay. I had chicken. And he looked at me and he goes, chicken. I goes, yeah. And he says, oh, strange. I didn't see any chicken. And uh, we went to we, we were at two o'clock in the morning. And we were loading the fans to go and. You know, just checking everybody was up, and everybody starts moving out. And there's a security guard in the car park shooting rats oh, with a pellet gun. And uh, Amos, you come out, and he goes, "Ah," oh. he said, "Ah, oh, there's your chicken." I go, "Sorry." Oh. He goes, uh, "He goes, yeah, they just boil them, skin them, and they take the, the white meat and put it on a plate." So, oh, wow, I had rat at the hotel. So, how was it? Can you remember? It, it didn't. I mean, 17 hours driving. We had food packs, so we gave everybody. Um, when we started the rally, everybody had a food pack per day per crew. But you got fed up with the food packs after like three or four days. So this chicken seemed like a luxury. So uh, it, it wasn't. It wasn't chicken. It wasn't chicken. That was unfortunate. But the the hotels. You'd have a good hotel or a bad hotel. The one I remember the one night uh, that year. I think it was day two. Um, Shoji, who I mentioned earlier from Tusk Engineering, come out and he got a Japanese film crew with him. And he goes, oh, come in, come in, have a look, have a look. And uh, there was rats running up and down the the staircase and running underneath the doors into the room. So uh, I got the boys together. I said, boys, I said, you know, wash, shower, whatever you want to do. But I recommend that we, you know, we sleep in the vans tonight. And uh, we'd we taken sleeping bags for everybody. And uh, that's what we did on that one event. 
So some of the events, were, some of the hotels were fine, but you know, you've got to look back over those years. It was, um, it was, it was a full communist state back then. Um, you, you know, you, you'd never, I don't think you'd ever get the access we got to to drive through the country like you do nowadays. Or if you did, it'd be very limited. You know, one of the national news media probably be able to do it. But um, yeah. we, we had secret police following us. Um, they, they'd stop at the hotel each night um, in grey suits and then they'd get in the car and follow us during the day. And uh, we, had, we had them with us for like three or four days. And the, those guys were like absolutely shattered by the end of it. They were sleeping in reception. But um, you know, there was a lot of state control still back then. So there were so many different elements that were going on. But, you know, fundamentally it was a, it was a, a rough... You know, you were driving for seven days, the terrain changed, you were in mountainous areas, you were in fast and wide areas, you were in sections that were like grease, that were rough. Um, it, it was very clear, it was a very polluted road, there was a lot of rain there. So I remember the day before the rally started, um, we made the call that we, because, because logistically it was going to be difficult, we made the call to cut every tyre. Uh, do like a, an outside cut to try and sweep some of the loose gravel off the surface. Yeah, it, it meant um, the two um, Michelin guys, and one of them had got food poisoning. Uh, meant that two of the Michelin guys and myself ended up cutting 300 wheels and tires. So um, it was a busy day, but uh, you know there was there was loads of things like that that happened. You know, we carried all the fuel with us. We moving parts around. Um, it, it was. I, again, that Derek, you know, just carrying the the fuel with you, you know, that it just doesn't happen these days, does it? No, no. I mean, we uh, we I can say now we we ended up mixing the fuel to just it was still legal, but it gave it a bit more uh, octane. So we'd have the whole process of decanting fuel drums, mm. uh, put you know before we started the Kowloon, and then re redoing the fuel, and every van carried an emergency set of wheels and tires in case another van never made the service. Everybody yeah. carried fuel. We were carrying a tin of fuel in the in the mechanics chase cars. The mechanics chase cars were then picking up the gravel notes and and sometimes driving back down the stage. And um, you know it, it, it was loads that went on. It was it was crazy. Yeah, it was. But as we said at the at the top of this Hong Kong Beijing story, it was a it was a great event for Mitsubishi, wasn't it? There was a, a one two three there with with uh, with Vatanen leading. And yeah, and that, that was, you know, with, um, Kenneth and Piera that year both crashed out. Um, it was, um, we was we, uh, before that happened, we were quite strong anyway. Um, you know, Ari was, um, Ari's a perfect gentleman. He was, uh, you know, he'd driven with a galant for Mitsubishi. He was an ambassador for Mitsubishi. He, he was, uh, him and Richard were really trading times. I mean, if you see, if you get a chance to look some, back at some of the videos of, of the event, there's some online now, they're, uh, you know, you could see that it was a it was a very quick event. Um, Kanjiro still held held close. He was only, he was only twenty minutes behind at the end. So, um, but, the, but after 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 um, after Kenneth crashed out, I think that um, you know we we kind of like half lifted the foot. Yeah. Uh, so, but it was it was you know obviously with all the sponsorship going on, wherever you went, you've got five 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 and Subaru banners everywhere lining the route. Uh, to get the cars and to Chatham and Square at the finish. That's where the finish was. You drove, you finished the rally through the Great Wall. It was a last tarmac stage. Um, so you did a tarmac stage through the wall and across the the, the, uh, the dam. Um, and then you drove in the convoy to Chatham and Square. Obviously the big pictures, you know, on the ramp there. Yeah. 
but for Mitsubishi, it was it was massive. It was one, two, three, four. Yeah, and just quickly to touch on, obviously Richard had come to he he'd won his first APRC round in New Zealand just before that, hadn't he? Or was it before Australia? There was Australia, then Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Richard, Richard was. I mean, Richard even came to Safari with us the year before. So uh, that year, to uh, he was basically in the crop. We put him in the crop car with Mike Stewart. Um, Richard, Richard, we saw him as a as a, a big option. Um, he, we watched. You know, we're looking for um, another driver to support Tommy, um, and we'd use specialists in '95, Aguini and Kenneth. Yeah, uh, you know. It, but it, it wasn't the same. It wasn't consistent enough with enough seat time to, to push for the manufacturer's title. So 96 for us was that first idea of trying to get, you know, a driver's championship, which obviously we were successful with Tommy, but also further down the line to try and secure the manufacturer's title for Mitsubishi. And we didn't think that would come straight away, but the planning was there to try and to try and make that happen. So we were very good to work with Richard and Robert. There were... There were I think fair to say that they'd basically come from Subaru and they knew they'd, they'd been treated a Subaru way and when they came to us we kind of treated them the rally art way so yeah. it was um it, it was very refreshing um to work with them and it, they were, they were, there was a great balance between Tommy and, and Richard um but on that event obviously Ari was like you know Mr Perfect and Tilbur was co-driving so uh, they you know that was a, a com- I think I think I think Richard struggled a bit with confidence against Tommy's pace when he came into the team. We changed a few things around in New Zealand on the Asia Pacific round, and he won that event. And we kind of like almost like fudged him into getting the result there. But um, yeah, you could see that we had a really good option with both drivers there. Yeah, and Christian Tilber there, you're you're talking about Vatanen's co-driver. He was a hugely experienced fella in that part of the world, wasn't he? On those style of events. Yeah, Dakar and everything. You know, he was, um, you know, very, very partnered with Fabrizio a number of times. But for that event, Tilba came in very good, very good at, um, you know, judging the pace. Um, but I think, I think in the end, I think that, um, you know, the the pace was basically to start off. It was incredibly quick until the two, bought, you know, Kenneth and uh, Piero had crashed out for Subaru. So we kind of backed off. But yeah, we brought him in. He was great. He was a great ambassador. He was also really good experience. And then, yeah. then of course, Kanjiro also had done the event before, and you know, we we took some of his input and knowledge, and you know, we always included the Kanjiro and all the actual Tusk boys and Ishiguro and everything as part of the team. So it was a one, two, three for Mitsubishi. So there we are. That's Safari 96, Hong Kong, Beijing 96. Great, great stories. That's just the beginning of of some of these uh, amazing stories that Derek's got to tell us. Next week, we're going to jump forward two years to Safari Rally 98, which British rally fans, very special event for for us because Richard Burns' first ever World Rally Championship win. Not just Richard Burns, Robert Reed, of course, as well. Um, and then a very special treat for everybody. We're going to get Derek's take on the 1998 RAC Rally. And if you need me to let you know the significance of that event for Tommy Mackinnon and a certain Spaniard called King Carlos, uh, then perhaps you're listening to the wrong podcast. Anyway, thank you very much for joining us this week. Thanks to Derek. And we will see you next week. Take care. Bye bye. <music>